Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And welcome to the sadness that is the Circus Sideshow. Sadness? Well, there's a lot of sadness and... Yeah, it's general sadness to the circus, to the circus sideshow. I mean, just to the, the straight-up circus, the main attraction, uh, as opposed to what exists in its shadows. Uh, the circus itself, you have like you have a lot of, of animals that have been taken from their natural habitat and forced to perform inside of a, a dark tent for, for locals so they can cheer and throw popcorn at them. You have clowns uh, prancing around uh, and engaging in various antics, um, some of which may be... From, arguably perverse you have you have singing you have dancing you have music and then you walk outside and in the shadows of the tent mm-hmm. there you have the sideshow and okay. and that's where we in- encounter a number of things that are either um, outright disturbing mm-hmm. or uh, more subtly disturbing well see that's the adult perspective yeah. if you'll come with me to my eight-year-old self okay then you will be delighted and amazed by all of this, this rich symbolism present, uh, not just at the circus, but in the carny sideshow, right? Because here the mysteries are revealed in front of your very eyes and the oddities of life. And you begin to question what is reality. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, there is a lot of that. It's about, there's a lot of magic in law involved, a lot of illusion, and then a lot of, uh, outright examples of, Nature gone a little strange, and then yeah. it forces you to question: Well, what is normal? What is what is what is wrong with me personally? Uh, because I'm paying to see this. Uh, all of these uh, factors come into play. And we are going to start out here uh, while we look at the secrets of the side shows more in uh, in history here, because really, if if you look at a current sideshow today, it's nothing like it was in the past. As yeah. you say, it was very dark terrain here, very dark psychological stuff that people were taking their families to. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's still still a lot of love for it, a lot of nostalgia for it, and you can you can certainly you can go to Coney Island and uh, enjoy uh, some of that there, and and at various other points uh, across the United States. But this was a time, um, you know, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, where people didn't really have the understanding um, that we do now of the natural laws of science, let's say, mm-hmm. and the fact that there couldn't maybe be a Fiji mermaid, the skeleton of a Fiji mermaid, that proved that mermaids do exist, because sometimes this was part and parcel of Everybody the Everybody had the, more or less the basic understanding of the natural world as the, as the common YouTube commenter, basically. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. It's very possible. But today we are, we're definitely going to lift the canvas tent flap, look inside and see what's going on here. And to, to really understand that you do need to kind of get into the world of the carning and the sideshow, uh, more specifically in something called 10 in one. And this is part of the circus that contain usually 10 different sideshows in one tent. And one price? Well, I don't know if it was one price, but I do understand from what I've read that you had a guide taking you through the sort of hall of horrors or mysteries, um, letting you know about all these fantastic things that exist in the world. Yeah, and then sometimes at the end, there's a, an extra little bit, sort of a sort of an under the table bit for uh, for the discerning gentleman in the audience. Are you talking about some sort of like sexy lady thing? Sometimes it was sexy lady thing, but sometimes it was simply uh, stuff that was like a little grimmer. Or, uh, for instance, it was, or sometimes it was just pickled pugs, where of course you know uh, various um, 
uh, stillbirths and weird fetuses of humans oh, right. and other animals that are preserved and, and, uh, and you gawk at. Uh, sometimes it, it would be that. And sometimes that would factor into our earlier part of the show. Yeah, and the Fiji mermaid, which I had exactly. mentioned, yeah. like the bones of this supposed mermaid that existed. Um, but yeah, there were a bunch of different oddities. They had some that were really kind of cheesy and, and not too illusion heavy. Like yeah. there was a, a woman who's, Head stuck out of this board, the make, spider web, the spider yes. web, uh, <laughs> making it look as though she was a human spider, and it's very obvious that her head is just sticking through something. Yeah, like it's not like they were even doing any makeup on her human head. It was just straight up. Look, it's a spider with a human head on it. Ah. And then there's the sword swallower, which is a real thing, right? I mean, people are actually pulling off this trick, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but all of this stuff is mixed in so that you do have some real tricks being pulled off some some real like hey we're pushing the edges of what's possible with our physiology along with just pure like bunk it reminds me a lot of the last unicorn you've seen the last unicorn right perhaps even read it i've seen 10 minutes of it you've seen 10 minutes of the last unicorn jeez it, well no i tried to show my daughter she's four years old super sensitive to oh, she's she, she saw danger coming and we had to turn it off yeah it, it is it's i mean it's really good but yeah maybe she's not ready for it just yet but there's a scene in it where uh, the unicorn uh, is taken in by this uh, this evil witch and she has this uh, sideshow uh these various carts with cages and inside appears to be a different magical creature in each one, like a manticore and a dragon, uh, etc. But the the thing is that most of these cages are filled with just normal animals that she's cast a spell on, uh, and the spell makes them seem to be like the 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 manticore is not a manticore; it's just a a, a broken down old lion. But the spell makes it seem uh. like something amazing and, and unreal. Uh, one of the animals actually is a dangerous. Um, crazy magical creature the harpy and then the unicorn uh the the horn is invisible to everyone else right. so she still has to, even though the unicorn is real she has to cast a spell on it to make it seem amazing to the individuals that are attending her little freak show and you see varying degrees of that with all, with with some of these sideshow acts that we're looking at where you'll have things that there's really no trick to it at all there's nothing amazing going on it's just the illusion and you have plenty of examples, too, where there is something really amazing, really dangerous going on, but you need to heighten the drama of it in order to sell it to the audience. And one of the best examples of this mm-hmm. that you stumbled upon is the Headless Lady. The Headless Lady, yes. This one, uh, um, I may have encountered it in passing before, but I really had not looked long and hard at it until y- just yesterday. Um, the Headless Lady uh, act generally consists of the following. Uh, there'll be, uh, there'll, there'll be a, a woman. On the stage, mm-hmm. set it seated up on a pedestal of some kind. Uh, but here's the, the the gimmick: she appears to have no head. Uh, there's just a stump where where at the neck where the head should be, mm-hmm. and out of that stump, there's like a tree emerging, like a, a like a metal pipe with other tubes coming out of it, and the tubes are hooked up to um, what, what what's supposed to be a bunch of medical equipment, but in reality may be like a carburetor and an old oxygen tank, and, <laughs> right. and who knows what. I yeah. mean, I, I looked at a number of pictures, and it ranges from, eh, I could I could buy that as being some, you know, typical mad science mumbo-jumbo, to that is totally like a carburetor or something. Um, so there'll be a doctor or a scientist attending her, because, you know, when you when you create the kind of uh, scientific breakthrough that can uh, keep a body alive without mm-hmm. a head uh, and make it do your your bidding, 
you want to showcase that at the at the local county fair or, or freak show. And the doctor has to travel with this woman right. to ensure that she continues to live. Yeah. So the sell on this is the the miracles of modern science. Look what we can do now. And so the the idea is that this woman lost her head. And the body's kept alive through this amazing uh, mechanical uh, feat. And then uh, the doctor will uh, even go so far as to uh, to command the body to do certain things, to do, like, small tasks with its hands. And uh, and then there may even be some sort of vaudevillian uh, shenanigans going on in there as well, some, you know, slapstick or what have you. Um, Someone tickling her foot. And yeah. so you see the legs moving. Yeah, and the whole yeah the whole time you're seeing her at least twitch and move, and you're seeing her perform tasks. And they do the trick by having a real human woman set up there with a kind of tiara of mirrors mm-hmm. that reflects the sides, the dark sides of the booth that she's in, and makes it look like her head is gone, and all you see is this tree of of tubes that seem to be emerging from her neck. So everyone, you know, attends it and they're like, ooh, this is amazing. Uh, and, and at first I was thinking, oh, this is be a cool thing to cover because it's kind of mad science-y and mm-hmm. it's kind of weird and, and it's generally the kind of thing I go for. But the, the closer I looked at it, the more disturbing it really was. Right, because here in its essence is the objectification of a woman, right? Yes. I mean, it doesn't matter that she has a head, right? There's her body. We see her in pieces. Yeah, and this falls in line with a lot of uh, uh, of advertising uh, stuff I was looking at yesterday too, uh, where uh, one author was making the point that uh, anytime you see like a, a commercial advertisement, etc., uh, look to see if the woman's head is partially or completely cut off. Mm-hmm. Look to see if her feet are partially or or completely cut off. Uh, they were arguing that removing the head, remo- removing the feet, that's complete objectification. In that case, you're like, look at this woman, but don't worry, she has no brain. She can't look at you or speak to you or hear you. And also, she can't run away. So we can just, it's just all there for you. Yeah, every little trope about women is contained in this one sideshow act. And what's interesting about the sideshow act is that this is the age of the artificial lung, yeah. the artificial heart. And so, you know, no doubt there, there weren't a lot of people who were taken by this. I'm sure most people went through it and knew that there was some sort of trick at play. And yet it arrests the, the, uh, the imagination because you know, this is a period where it must have felt like cutting edge science was going on. Maybe, just maybe someone could lose their head in an accident and a German doctor could somehow plop all of these hoses into her neck, stump, and make her live. Yeah, it seemed possible and a little illusion makes it seem completely real. But, but yeah, just so disturbing, uh, especially when you look at some of these uh, photos. There was one photo that we were looking at yesterday. It was actually apparently by Eudora Welty, the mm-hmm. author. And uh, this one showed, it was like really creepy because the, the woman, the headless woman's not uh, up on her pedestal in a booth. Uh, the, the drawing shows her standing with an arm around one gentleman, shaking the hand of another gentleman. And then the text promises you $1,000 if she is not alive. And that's just, it was just so grim and gross. And just like the implied molestation of a headless woman was just really, really weird. It's pretty creepy. And I have to say that, you know, that's not such a crazy bet. She's clearly alive. Yeah. They're not going to lose money. Well, on yeah, that. you don't you don't offer that unless you can fall through. But it but it also falls right in line with a, a 2012 study mm-hmm. that uh, that you uh, you also sent me. And this was for, uh, published in uh, the European Journal of Social Psychology titled Seeing Women as Objects: The Sexual Body Part Recognition Bias. And simply put, the study found that men and women tend to see women as an assemblage of various parts rather than a complete whole. That's right. They had them look at uh, several different pictures mm-hmm. and try to figure out if uh, the body part was 
belong to this specific person and so on and so forth. And they called it, was it global and local cognitive processing? Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter if you were a male or a female, overwhelmingly, people would look at the photos of women in a global perspective, meaning that they there was a lot of space between how they, they saw her and they saw her more in pieces, mm-hmm. as opposed to the pictures of the men, which they saw more as a whole. So what that is pointing to is, again, this idea that um, it's sort of written into the code of, of society that you look at women piecemeal. Yeah. Um, and that you can't help to cut them up, at least in your psyche. Oh, God, that's awful. It is awful. And uh, one of the, the awful things about this is uh, I wanted to use that Aurora Welty uh, photo in a blog post yesterday. It wasn't available. So I did a like a Getty images and a Corbis images mm-hmm. search for headless woman. And it was really horrifying. Not that I was seeing like a bunch of like decapitation photos because the decapitation like art that would show up tended to be, to be uh, depictions of the biblical uh, Judith which was right. actually rather uh, encouraging in light of the other results, which were all just a bunch of fashion-y, artsy shots of women um, you know, with their head cut off in the photo, a cut off via the photography. And it was just a really uh, a really dark afternoon you <laughs> researching know, that. I'm glad you brought that up because any time I've done searches in, in various stock photo um, systems, and it could be like, you know, look, uh, maybe my search keywords are like mouse baby. <laughs> Eventually a naked female torso is going to show up yeah. in that batch for some reason or another. Yeah. Well, and you can turn off the nudity results on some of those search engines. Mm-hmm. But but then again, I, I, if you turn that off, you're still going to get a bunch of ridiculous images. So my view is, well, they might as well be naked if I'm going to have to put up with a bunch of stupidity in these results. Uh, on a side note, have you ever seen the collection of stock photos of women eating salad? No. It's very funny. It's like women laughing and smiling while eating salad. <laughs> so, I can picture it in my mind, for sure, because I know right. I've seen that a, a million times in advertising. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to go into those vaults of, of um, pictures of humans and see all these tropes played out. Um, but we're going to we're going to get to some some other good circus sideshow stuff here. Yeah, stuff with stuff with uh, with more science behind it than the uh, the faux science of the headless woman. Should we take a quick break before we go into sword swallowing? Yes, indeed. We'll be right back. All right, we're back, and uh, we're talking a little bit now about sword swallowing, another uh, another staple of the uh, of the sideshow world. In a real thing, right? This yes. is not an illusion. This is something that someone is doing methodically, and obviously they have practiced so many times and gotten to know uh, their digestive system really well before attempting this in front of an audience. Yeah, there's some myths out there about it. Um, and uh, some of these are, you know, you'll find, I think some of them even have been repeated in major encyclopedias. Harry Houdini even uh, uh, reported that uh, sword swallowers would actually s- uh, swallow a metal sheath first before inserting the sword, which, for starters, does, <laughs> does not sound like it would make it any easier. It's, it's like, oh... Don't worry, they're not they're not really swallowing a sharp sword. They've secretly inserted a really long um, sword sheath into their um, the, into their down their throat and into their stomach, and that's how they're getting away with this. Yeah, that just seems like it would complicate things. Yeah, and and it, certainly as we explain how it's actually done, you'll see that that's that's completely silly. 
Yeah, because, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's something that you can control and with practice you can do. Um, if you want to see or if you want to read more about this, check out our sword swallowing article by Tracy V. Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, of history stuff. It's really great. Uh, but let's look at the GI tract before we delve into the, the actual blade into the digestive system. Yeah, now we've covered some of this before because we did that that epic journey through the digestive system, and we're just talking about the initial uh, jaunt here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember from that episode that we chew up our food, we form this uh, bolus, and the bolus travels down uh, the throat and into the stomach, and that's generally the territory we're dealing with here. The upper GI tract is, of course, a series of connected living organs. It includes the throat, uh, the esophagus, and the stomach, and it's uh, relatively soft, has several pronounced curves, and uh, that's in a relaxed state. Um, and uh, it's, on the surface of things, not a perfect sheath in which to insert a uh, blade of any kind. No, because it's uh, regular shaped, right? right? And so there are some things that you have to do to manipulate it down your throat. Um, but I wanted to point out that skeletal muscle is present mm-hmm. in, in the upper GI as well as smooth muscle. Skeletal muscle is under voluntary control. So right. you can just say, hey... That's, I don't need to contract this right now. I don't need to contract my throat or my mouth. Uh, but your smooth muscle is involuntary, and this is what is involved in peristalsis, and this is that movement of that bolus down into the stomach. So what we're talking about here is really trying to control those gag reflexes yes. and that smooth muscle movement when you're performing this trick, because there are a couple of different things that happen when you're inserting the blade. So imagine you have this this sword about 15 inches long, anywhere from 15 inches to 24 inches, by the way. And there's an actual like limit that is set forth by the sword swallowing association. Yeah, like they they're generally cool with you not having it enter the stomach, but it's okay if it does a little bit. Uh, However, you don't want to use a sword so long that it like winds up in your boot. Because then, then you're doing it wrong. There's going to be some puncturing going yes. on with that. So, the, yeah, there is actually a Sword Swallowers uh, International Association that, that sort of uh, polices this, if you will. And what happens is you have that blade, let's say it's 20 inches long, it passes by the teeth and then it eases into the upper esophageal sphincter. Scrapes over the teeth, even. I think that makes it even grisly or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm like having some physiological responses here to that. Um, so then... It's coated in saliva at this point, and that helps to lubricate it, and it goes deeper into the esophagus. Now, the blade, as it is traveling down into the esophagus, is sort of straightening it out, this long tube, Mm -hmm. and occasionally is actually nudging organs out of the way as it passes by. Because there's a lot of stuff that could potentially get pierced if you do it wrong. We're talking about the trachea, the heart, the aorta, the uh, vena cava, the diaphragm, lots of, and you could get it all in one big shish kebab. It's true, you could. And here's the thing. You need to know your digestive system. You need to know whether or not um, the lower esophagus curves as it meets the stomach or if it's just a straight shoot. Because if it curves, then you're not going to be able to insert or plunge that sword Mm -hmm. as deeply as you could if it was just a straight shoot. As you mentioned already, one of the big things you want to be able to do is suppress the gag reflex because we're... We're naturally inclined not to let uh, swords climb down our throats. Uh, it, it gets into our, our, you know, our regular body's defenses against choking, etc. And uh, and so all you have to do now, I, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, is if you I hang out and I got a hug, 
I mean, you'll start to gag a little bit. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you suppress it. Now, suppressing the gag uh, reflex is something that doesn't really, it's not an on-off switch. You can't just, you know, go into a zen-like state and be like, ah, I got it. It comes from a lot of gagging yourself and possibly vomiting. Uh, as you <laughs> as you do it, and and the, and you need not use a sword to do it to uh, to actually prepare yourself. Uh, and uh, generally, they're using like something you know, like a chopstick or something, or just good old fingers. Or your toothbrush, right? Or your toothbrush. Yeah, I mean, this is something you'd have to do over and over and over again until your mind could get comfortable with this feeling, and you could kind of say, "I need you to suppress this." Yes. Uh, because what's happening here? You've got receptors or nerve endings that are coming into contact with that blade, and then the nerves or the neurons carry the receptors' information to your central nervous system, and then the integration center says, "Hey, there's there's something going on here. Maybe we need to have a response." And then right back, the mo- motor neuron carries the integrating center's instructions to that part of your body to say, hey, you need to do something about this. And then something called the effector makes a necessary change um, to what's going on in your body, namely this gag reflex. So yeah. it's a it's a bit of a process. Yeah, because eventually you kind of have to break down the brain and convince it, no, it's totally cool that a saber is going down my throat. And like, this is something that is in place for your survival, right? Yep. So you have to convince your brain, like, look, there, there really is no threat here, even though it's hardwired to say, really? That's a, that's a blade <laughs> coming after us. So as an audience member watching somebody swallow a sword, uh, well, a few of the different aspects that really make it a, a memorable show is, first of all, you're not, is counting on the, the audience not having a really thorough understanding of the digestive uh, tract and mm-hmm. how it's working. Because again, as we're, we point out here, it's totally possible to get that more or less straight line, uh, get it lined up. It's, it's totally possible to suppress the, the, the gag reflex mm-hmm. over time. Uh, so we're, they're doing something that isn't completely crazy from a physiological standpoint, but then still is risky. Certainly, it's 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 very easy to injure yourself. If not severely, then uh, you know certainly you can end, you can have mild internal bleeding. You mm-hmm. can have you can you can aggravate um, any number of uh, tissues on the way down. So it's uh, it's at once not that big of a deal and still completely nuts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah because the person in the audience cannot imagine pulling this feet off for him or herself. Mm-hmm. And when you think about sol- swallowing a sword you immediately think of just sticking it straight into your mouth, right? And you don't even realize that the performer is hyperflexing yes. his or her neck in order to get that straight shoot down. So yeah, you're not thinking about the mechanics of like, oh, okay, now they're just uh, creating a, a, a very straight tube to insert this into. Yeah, and it's really, if you don't know how it works, it is easier to imagine the ways you could fake it rather than to imagine the ways you could actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my mind wouldn't instantly go to, like, fake, uh, to, I mean, to metal sheaths inserted in the throat, because that seems like you're doing, that would be doing the same trick twice to get out of doing it once or something, you know? Right. But I, w- I always kind of imagine, well, they must have some sort of a sword that collapses, so that they're maybe not sticking mm-hmm. it all the way down. Like, maybe just, you know, it's like one of those uh, toy, um, you know, plastic swords that pops out, except it's made out of metal. But uh, but no, it's the it's an actual sword going down your actual throat, maybe even a little bit into your actual stomach, though that's not required uh, according to the Sword Swallowers Association International. But uh, I don't know, maybe it helps. You never know. I mean, you might want to push your boundaries a bit if you're the performer. Yeah. Uh, see how good you can get and how dangerous it could be, right? Because I yeah. imagine that if you're doing this over and over and over again, uh, it becomes pretty normal. Uh, in quotation marks, I suppose. Well, and then some of these, uh, these professors, cause the thing is, 
as we've outlined, it, it's a it's a totally learnable thing. You can uh, you can train yourself and train your body to do it, and then you're an accomplished sword swallower, and then you're you're having to compete with other sword swallowers. So what do you have to do? You have to swallow more swords. So you see uh, acts where an individual will will have like seven swords uh, down their throat at a given moment, and, uh, right. and so it just ups the ante until somebody winds up a shish kebab. And then you know, then everybody just goes home. Yeah, and there's still some sort of awful delight from that. Yeah. Let's just admit it. Yeah, because it's a sideshow. Yeah, there's the, the, the shadow side of this whole thing, as you had said at the top. Um, all right, so we are padding down the hall of wonders here, and what do we come upon next? Ooh, the bed of nails. Blah. Yes. Now, this one is this one has always been a favorite of mine, because it's, uh, on the surface of things, it's uh, it's clearly a torture instrument. It's it's nefarious. You've taken something completely comfortable and mundane and, and wonderful, the bed the place where 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 people find their rest, where they find their enjoyment, where they may read a book, it's a it's supposed to be a safe place. And what have you done? You've turned it into an instrument of torment. You've replaced that comfy mattress with with hundreds of razor sharp nails, and they're just poking up. And so clearly, if one were to lay on this, it would just be just unequaled torment. And uh, you know, if you you color it up a bit in your presentation, and you you describe how this uh, the the origin of the uh, of the the bed of nails like dates back to some you know twisted civilization, or it's, you know, it's an import from some strange country right. on the other side of the world, then all the better. It's exotic. It's got ag- agony. It looks like a medieval torture device. Yes, but if you put mind over matter, or somehow use a little magical hoodoo in there. There's a way to lay upon the bed of nails and suffer no injury, miraculously. Uh, but all of this actually has a lot to do with, it seems odd, but say stilettos and an elephant's foot. Okay. Okay, because this is this idea that a bed of nails is providing surface area. And your body is the force or the weight that is going to uh, lay upon this area or lie upon this area. So if you... Okay, so let me just go back to this, this stiletto and this elephant. If you were to be stepped on by an elephant, uh, you would actually find out that it is much less painful than the stiletto. And the reason is because all of that padding, that surface area of that, that elephant's foot is actually helping to distribute the weight. Whereas that, uh, that stiletto, has just that little bit of surface area, and there's a ton of pressure coming down. In fact, a person in high heels is going to exert 15 times more pressure than that elephant's foot. Because all of it is uh, is completely isolated into that one little tip, all the weight in that one little tip, whereas in the elephant's foot, it's spread out. It's distributed. Yeah, so imagine if there was a piece of plywood, a, mm-hmm. you know, the size of a bed, and it had only one nail in it much like that stiletto, and you threw your body on top of that, mm-hmm. you're going to puncture yourself. Yes. But if you have 600 nails that are spread across it, lo and behold, it's going to support your weight, and you're going to come out of that experience completely unscathed. But the audience is going to think, oh, what sort of superpowers do you have? Yeah, because it's, first of all, it's a, again, it's a presentation of the thing, and then most people do not have at, or at least did not have access to a bed of nails to try this out for themselves. They had no real uh, frame of reference other than one nail is bad, so clearly hundreds of nails would be even worse. But if given the choice between laying on a bed of nails and laying on a bed of nail, always go with the nails. That's right. Go with the plural. Yeah. And um, what I love about this is that this Sideshow Act has actually been taken into schools by the University of Virginia in their fun uh 
fun science section, I believe. Excuse me. They're, they're, fun division of science. It's yes. uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's like fun, fun physics. Excuse yes. me. And it's P-H-U-N. Fun. Uh, but they go into elementary and high school students with this bed of nails, and then they have the teacher lie on top of it. And they teach children this whole idea about force and pressure. And um, what they had said, actually, in, in some of their materials that they have online, that is that an average human of 150 pounds, when they're spread out over those 600 nails, they'll feel only 0.25 pounds of force per nail. So if you have this bed of nails... Um, they're not getting, or I should say, they're not going to get that experience of pain because they would have to experience something like two pounds of pressure per nail. Hmm. But if only your teacher could fire breathe. Ah, yes. Fire breathing is another, another great, uh, carnival act. And of course, this one, uh, is, is often generally flavored up with lots of, uh, lots of information about how it's like a, you know, far Eastern, uh, um, art that is being brought to you. And, uh, and certainly it's an old practice, uh, an individual, will uh, sometimes uh, drink something mm-hmm. or sometimes they'll sort of do that a little uh, surreptitiously. You'll have a, an open flame and you'll just and you'll breathe out this uh, this fiery goodness. That's right. A fine mist will cover this flame source. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, you'll get that huge plume of flame. And it is pretty simple. I mean in in um, in theory, right? You just swish something around in your mouth, a mm-hmm. fuel source, and then you spew it out. But yeah, what, it, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right. That's that's so straightforward. Why why do, isn't everyone a fire breather? Yeah, worst worst case, well, not worse. <laughs> but if things go wrong, you can always join the freak show, right? It's oh yeah, yeah. it's true. Yeah, well, I was reading some examples of one uh, quote unquote freak in in particular who was in a gasoline accident and burned up lower portion of his face, and he had a prosthetic that he could wear that looked fine and you know in, mm-hmm. in the right lighting. And then, so he began a career as a, a sideshow uh, freak, uh, as like a, the two-faced man, where you would see him with the prosthetic and then without. Oh, uh, okay. Again, it's sad. It's dark, but I know it is. It kind of clouds the fire breathing now. Yeah. Sorry. Um, all right, so let me, let's talk about how it could go awry here. You've got to have direction and consistency. So, what fire breathers usually do is they they practice pretty extensively with water first to make sure that they can get that mist going in the right direction, mm-hmm. um, and that they can get it traveling for the uh, the distance that they need it to. So it doesn't basically like fall. The fuel doesn't fall back on them. Right. Never do it into the wind. Exactly. Yeah. And they have to have a specific angle that they're shooting for, about uh, between sixty and eighty degrees. This angle. If it's lower, it can make that flame come up on a body part, and higher can cause that fuel to fall back onto the face. And the choice of fuel is really important because you have a flash point, and this is the the point at which the fuel ignites. You can ignite at a high or a low temperature. You have toxicity. You have the taste and the smell. Uh, you have the color and the visibility of the flame, which is for the audience, right? Mm-hmm. You want it to be huge and big. And then you have the amount of um, and the thickness of smoke. So kerosene is most often used. But I will tell you that gasoline and, and methyl ethyl alcohol, they those are things that are avoided like the plague, because first of all, first of all, they're really really uh, flammable. They're yeah. highly flammable, and so they're hard to control. But they're also really toxic. And with methyl ethyl, you could actually become drunk off of the fumes. Yeah, and you, there's two things you don't want to mix there for sure. No. So fire breathing. Not something you just want to pick up on a whim and think, ah, all right, it's simple. I just need fuel in my mouth and then an open flame, and then I just do it, and then people will cheer me, and uh, I get paid. 
not so fast, you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is not easy money, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the stakes are pretty high. In fact, I have seen uh, recommendations where if people are curious about this, they should start with cornstarch hmm. instead of an actual fuel in their mouth. Well, you know, just spitting a fine mist can be plenty of enjoyment. Um, of course, as, as everyone knows, I'm, I'm a fan of the pro wrestling. And uh, there's a long tradition of uh, of some wrestlers using a green mist or sometimes a red mist as an illegal move. And it's generally, uh, it has kind of a, a sideshow mentality to it as well because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's something mysterious, generally from uh, from the East. Uh, and it'll often be used by, uh, uh, was historically used a lot by a jet by Japanese wrestlers, uh or wrestlers claiming to be Japanese performing in the United States. Uh, and so you would have like a dye in the mouth and then you spit this mist in someone's face and they're blinded. You know, I was thinking a lot about wrestling in our kayfabe episode that mm-hmm. we did about the shadow self. Yeah. And about all of, all of what it takes to create this illusion. It's not just the mechanics of it. Oh, yeah. They're side the by side. Yeah. yeah. Not just in, in spirit, but I mean, also historically. I mean, they're both carnival uh, uh, businesses, and uh, there's still a lot of carny uh, to wrestling, uh, just as there's, of course, a lot of carny to actually uh, being a carny. So, it's true. Yeah. All right. Up next, uh, another favorite of mine: uh, the human blockhead. Now, uh, this act is generally pretty uh, pr- pretty simple on the on the, the surface of things, and you'll you'll have a uh, a geek who will come f- uh, forth. And they will uh, take a nail and they'll uh, angle it into their nostril. Generally, they'll they'll sort of their nose will sort of go up like a pig's nose mm-hmm. a bit as they get into position, and then they'll tap on it with a hammer, and uh, and just there'll be this nice tink 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 noise as the the, the nail sinks <laughs> a little deeper into the into the, into the face into the head of the individual, and uh, and then they'll turn the hammer around, use the claw in to pull it out and. And uh, everyone will go nuts. Sometimes they'll up the ante. They'll use, maybe they'll use a screwdriver, mm-hmm. or they'll use a, even a power drill in more recent years. And it's uh, just grisly to look at. Uh, and and th- and they're generally approaching it with a certain amount of humor that makes it all the more entertaining. Now, it's a lot like sword swallowing, actually. So sword sword, yeah. sword swallowing, as we discussed, is basically taking advantage of, of an existing orifice that is uh, and, and putting a rigid object into that non-rigid orifice, okay? And also overcoming your gag instinct, uh, an involuntary uh, reflex, in order to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And we see much the same thing with uh, the Human Blockhead Act. And a lot of it comes down to the shape of the nasal cavity. If you look at a cross-section of the human head, you realize, or at least you're reminded of the fact that uh, your your mouth, nasal cavity, it takes up a lot of real estate in the Mm -hmm. head. So behind your nose... There's actually a lot of room for a long nail or a screwdriver or what have you to go in. Uh, you've just got to, again, you've got to, you sort of angle the nose up, get it sort of lined up right, and then add a little theatrics about, you know, so that you're having to hammer it in and cre- creating the illusion that this, that this nail is being driven into solid mass uh, or even brain. Yeah, it's true, because if you look at the nose, you assume that the nasal passage is sort of a perpendicular um mm-hmm. Structure, but it's not. It's at a horizontal. That nasal cavity is actually connecting the nose and the throat, and it goes almost straight back. Yeah. So that's why when the performer is inserting the nail, they kind of lift up the nostril a bit, like you said, like sort of the pick nose, mm-hmm. in order to get that angle to straight shoot back into that hole in their skull. Yeah, because think of a skull. Think of the just a straight up picture of a skull and the the vertical slits uh, that you would see where the nose would be. Mm-hmm. I mean. There you go. There's the nose hole right there, and it's uh, and you could totally drive nails into that all day. 
Now, the other thing uh, about the reflex you're having to overcome, in this particular situation, it's the urge to sneeze one has to deal with. Because what happens when you start sticking stuff around in in your nose, you're going to trigger that sneeze reflex. Sneeze reflex, of course, is about ridding the the, the nasal cavity of potentially harmful material by ejecting it in a brilliant spray, not unlike the spray of a... Of a, of, a, um, of a fire breather. It's true. So it's that reflex arc that you have to suppress, much mm-hmm. like with the sword with the gag reflex, because, you know, in this case, you have the, the nerves that are sending the signal to the brain, and then your eyes start to water, and your nasal passages start to secrete fluid, and your diaphragm moves abruptly, and it's causing you to take a deep breath and get ready to eject that foreign object or that irritant from your nose. So, and you don't want to just be blasting nails at the audience. I mean, no. not unless that's your deal. And if you do, if you are, if that is your deal. You want to at least have control of when it happens. That would be a very interesting sort of like low tech pneumatic uh, nail gun. Yeah, it, that would be actually a very interesting sideshow on its own. I wonder if anyone's done that. Imagine a, like a superhero uh, who is the human blockhead, but then he's struck by lightning during an act, mm-hmm. and it gives him the power to um, blast nails out of his nose. That would be kind of neat. Wow, to summon like a supercharged reaction. Yeah. I like it. Uh, now, of course, you might also want to avoid looking at the lights while doing this particular act yeah. because you want to avoid uh, photic sneeze reflex, uh, which, of course, is you know, we've all had that thing where it's like if you feel like you're about to sneeze and you want to get it over with, they say, stare at the sun. Well, don't stare at the sun, but but, but sort of look <laughs> in the direction of a bright light and uh, and it will cause the sneeze to happen. You know, that's really interesting. uh, Researchers aren't exactly sure why it happens, but something like 20% of the population, when they go out into the sun from their house or some other Mm -hmm. dark area, um, they begin to sneeze. And and it's thought that the the sensors in our, the light sensors in our um, optic nerves are so close to the sensors for our nose that it's a little bit of a misfire of the brain, which is detecting that that the nose... um, sensors are basically detecting that light and interpreting it as an irritant. Huh. It's one of those things I didn't really know about till not too long ago when uh, I think maybe it was my wife that pointed out that if you're about to sneeze and you just want to go ahead and get it over with, you know, look to a bright light and that'll do it. Without Works fail, like my daughter does it every single time yeah? she leaves the house. Sun sneezing, yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, maybe we have some sword swallowers out there in the audience that can... Uh, Hope we do. Yeah, they can let us know. Yeah. Fire breathers, fire breathers, human blockheads, human blockheads uh, or even just you know carnival sideshow uh, aficionados. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can certainly find us uh, in any of the normal uh, means. You can check out our main website, stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can go to find us on social media. We're on Twitter. Blow the mind is our handle there. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can also reach us by sending us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.